Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to Squatch Radio. My name is Connor Malley, and I'm your host. Before we get into today's show, I wanted to share a little bit about me and why Squatch Radio exists. So I've been a passionate Squatch player for almost 20 years, but what makes my path slightly different from your average Squatch player is I've also made Squatch my career. I've worn almost every hat and worked in almost every role in the industry. Some quick examples are I've gone from being a volunteer at a professional event to then becoming the CEO of the US Open. I've gone from trying to make Team USA to then becoming the director of all national teams while working at US Squash. And I've certainly gone from just playing on squash courts to focusing on how the sport can grow in the United States. What has been a big part of fueling my passion all these years are the fascinating, passionate, and dedicated people involved in our sport. So Squash Radio, well, that's just a way to try and help share those stories. We hope you like it, and if you're interested in growing the sport, get in touch. Or can you help share these stories? Comments are welcome on any social media or email us at squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Our biggest challenge is always trying to get the word out, so any help is so much appreciated. Without further ado, please enjoy the show. What about this? This call is being recorded. Today's guest is Alicia McConnell, who is well-known within the sport of squash, but who you'll also learn has had a tremendous impact on shaping sports in the United States as we know it today and for future generations. In this episode, we cover what pressures came of rising to the top ranks of squash in the United States at the junior, collegiate, and professional level. We learn about her journey to and during her 20-year career at the United States Olympic Committee. We also get insight from her, who is one of the most authoritative figures on why squash hasn't broken into the Olympic ranks. As well as Alicia shares lots of great insights and personal stories about her life's journey. We go through the typical quickfires questions where we learn more about our guests, but I have to say it was an absolute pleasure to have Alicia on the show who continues to give so much back to the sport and continues to be a true role model. A quick thank you to our sponsor, Pro Sport LED, your trusted lighting source for racket sports facilities like squash, tennis, pickleball, or padel because of its advanced LED lighting technology. These lights are a perfect solution for anyone building a new facility, but they can easily be retrofitted into existing courts. If you're looking for lights or know anyone that is, please go ahead and connect us at squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy the show. Hey, Squash fans, welcome back to another show. We are thrilled to be having this guest here today, who's originally from New York City, but calling in today from Dublin, Ireland. I'd like to welcome Alicia to the show. Welcome. Hey, yeah. New York, New York, but Brooklyn, New York. I know, Brooklyn, one of the Squash meccas, so to speak, so... We're going to be diving into all sorts of background on you, but from an orientation point of view for the listener, the way that I would almost encapsulate your professional career post playing on court, you distinguished yourself as being one of the most successful persons within the field of sports with your role at the United States Olympic Committee, the USOC. And you had quite a task there of trying to basically help the US be most successful at the Olympic stage. And I was curious, how did you and the USOC approached this task, or I should say mission. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's definitely the mission. I mean, what's interesting about the U.S. Olympic Committee is you can have a mission that's, you know, we were very corporate focused. We were very marketing focused. Unlike most other countries around the world, the U.S. Olympic Committee has to raise the money to help our athletes. Most countries around the world, you're supported by your government. So we had a unique challenge of how do you get these corporate sponsors to fund your organization and then turn around and give most of that money away to the athletes and the national governing body? So I think a big piece of it was it was all about the dream, the dream of this young kid seeing an athlete cross that finish line, you know, hit that last shot and getting excited about a particular sport and thinking they can do that and I can be that, whatever their background. And so it's creating this enthusiasm for sport and activity and excitement. And through that, 
the USOC was able to raise funds to then give back to athletes for them to actually pursue those dreams. And a, a big piece, you know, you could say chicken or the egg because we needed the money to support the athletes, but the athletes had to be successful and win medals to turn around for the sponsors to want to be a part. And so there's always lots of back and forth conversation around, you know, which comes first. Of course, you want to save the athletes and to tie in today the talk around mental health. And there's so much more focus on the athletes, which is so great because it's true. We need to look at an athlete as a full person, a balanced person with their mental, emotional, physical, spiritual life. And so it's way more than just a medal. As I say that, it's a big task. And I was just thrilled to be a part, you know, a cog in the wheel, as you say, to be a part of trying to make it possible for athletes at multitude of levels to get to the next step, because each step leads to the next, which hopefully you earn a rank to get on a national team to eventually try to achieve making an Olympic or Paralympic team or for squash, it's still, you know, making a Pan American team. Yeah, it was, it was really an amazing time at the US Olympic Committee. With your tenure there, which was almost two decades, I can imagine that there were different challenges at different times. But what was one that you were most proud of that you and your team tackled in terms of achieving a goal? You know, that's an interesting question. Certainly the sort of twofold for me, because if I think of my actual title, the title that I had most of the time at the US Olympic Committee regarding creating training sites around the country so our athletes were able to get more resources where they trained to, again, achieve their dreams. Creating these Olympic and Paralympic training sites around the country were just amazing partnerships because the communities would get excited to support their athletes at all levels and help them achieve their dreams. You know, and some of them, that meant finishing college and they didn't quite make the Olympic team. Some of them, it just meant, you know, having a chance to make a national team. But the other piece that's interesting that I feel really proud about is today, the U.S. Olympic Committee, which is now called the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, and I think that's a really important piece that they've come together. We're one of only a couple of countries that the Olympic and Paralympic side of the house, so to speak, are one organization. Most countries, it's still separate. So with that being said, I think a big piece that I'm proud about is it wasn't necessarily my job description to be super involved in my community. I served on a lot of boards. I was involved with youth programs. And the more I was involved with the community, a lot of people thought my role at the U.S. Olympic Committee was I was the community person. I was trying to bring people to the U.S. Olympic Committee and trying to bring the USOC to the community. And today, I'm super proud, and it was happening before I left. But we're now in a full partnership, and Colorado Springs is called Olympic City. And the community had always really supported the U.S. Olympic Committee and U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee now, that's called. But often at the USOPC, didn't always see the value of the community efforts of volunteerism and service. And I think in my role as a community leader, I brought those two groups together a lot. And I'm just proud that they really work together now. And it's, they opened the Olympic and Paralympic Museum, which has been highlighted as one of the top museums in the country. Colorado Springs is also now keeps moving up in terms of a wonderful tourist destination. So I think it's a beautiful city. It might have still conservative leanings, but I think it's a wonderful place to live. It's beautiful. And so I think just bringing community and business together was, I'm proud of that. If you look back and it sounds like you and the organization knew that the key to success was going to be finding successful partnerships. Is there one, and I'm sure it takes many in order to achieve that, but was there one that sort of highlights maybe something that wasn't as obvious as a great or a key partnership that by doing so, by bringing them on board or you engaging them, that it really illustrated the success that the mission could have. So is there any partnership that comes to mind like that, whether it's um, an entity or a corporate partner that really helped facilitate the overall mission? In terms of, you know, there were my specific roles in terms of helping create these Olympic and Paralympic training sites, as well as community Olympic development programs. And then, of course, the overall USOPC with a lot of corporate sponsors. I think to start with USOPC corporate sponsors, I mean, I have to say the ad about moms that P&G did, Procter & Gamble. I mean, every time you watch those ads, you're in tears, at least I am, because that's a sponsor that took the reality of being really successful at sport. It takes a team. It takes a full team. And often that's your family. Those are the people closest to you. And often that's mom. So that's a corporate sponsor that was really able to utilize the partnership with the Olympic brand 
to elevate their product. I mean, that's the ideal. You get a corporation that wants to elevate their product through the emotional energy of positivity and hope and global peace and those type of things. One of the partnerships we had was the Lakeshore Foundation in Birmingham, Alabama, was a foundation which was based on supporting people with disabilities. And sometimes that's people with different abilities. You know, it's different words in terms of using that. And they literally were able to engage the city, different corporations. And of course, they were a foundation. And bringing all those pieces together, they were able to fund new athlete housing. They were able to fund specialty houses for military vets who had been injured where they're they're learning a new sport, but they can bring their whole family to Lakeshore Foundation on their property to learn a sport. So that partnership was pretty inspiring. They believed in people trying to achieve their dreams and would support these partnerships, bringing sort of that public and private together. So that was one of my favorite things really is traveling to cities and meeting people in the community that are helping kids and helping athletes and and just trying to make it a more accessible and inclusive environment for kids to be in sport. I mean, you touched on so many great things there, and I completely agree. The PNG Moms ad campaign was certainly, I don't know if I would have recalled that as top of mind, but now you mentioned it, I remember what it evoked and the connection between the product and the, the company and the athletes. It was just like almost as one, and it was so well done. I think one of the things as squash players, we always aspire to be on the highest stage we can, and as a sport, we've been making incremental progress for sure. But what are your thoughts on squash and trying to get into the Olympics? I think the whole challenge of getting into the Olympic Games and Paralympic Games is quite monumental. And so there's so many levels of it. I mean, we all know there's financial, there's political. I mean, ultimately, that executive committee of the IOC has to vote yes, and as well as the 123 members, if it's still at that number. One of the things today and what I feel I learned over my time is an exciting, entertaining, very visual, young, or youth-attracting sport. So if you think about what they've recently added, I mean, I have to say I was surprised with karate being another judge sport. Rock climbing, I was surprised because that seemed to come out of nowhere. But I can totally understand skateboarding. One of the things I would say to every community I talk to is build more skate parks because you're including kids on scooters, on skateboards, on bikes. It's one of the few areas kids can play without parents hovering. You know, a lot of sports today, kids sort of, part of it's they get to learn and grow in their own timeline, but it's become so competitive that they can't always be independent. And that's one thing that skateboarding provides. So yes, I'm going off on a little tangent about that piece of the puzzle and that sport needs to be fun and to keep retaining kids in sport, it's somehow keeping that fun piece. But back to your you know, initial question, it's something that although the IOC's role is to grow sport, to grow activity, it's you know, world peace, health and wellness, all of those ideals, they're really targeting what are young people doing today? How do we get more people around the world playing this sport? And a piece of the difficulty of it is you need these physical structures. You need these courts. So can squash look at this outdoor squash possibility? Can you play squash just with one wall, just to try it or practice it? You know, is it accessible? Is it easy to play? Is it cheap? So, and it usually the answer to that would be no, it's not easy. It's not always accessible. And I know SEA is an amazing program, even though being at the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, I wasn't able to work with squash, particularly because it wasn't an Olympic or Paralympic sport. I always kept my eye on what was going on and would share with a lot of my partners what SEA was doing because I think it was a great example of you bring kids in with the fun and entertainment of sport, but the ultimate goal is learning those life skills and getting kids to stay in school and having opportunities because really sport brings so many opportunities in your life. So again, back to your question, I really think it's exciting sports that people are going to tune in. And again, I was going to say, you know, today's a different environment. It's not just TV, obviously. That's old school. How many digital platforms are people watching your sport? Like what you're doing, squash. I mean, the webcasts on different events for squash, it has to go across all platforms so that people can see it. And the more they do, 
and even now that I'm in Dublin, Ireland, some of the volunteer work I'm doing for with one of the sport organizations is the European Commission is putting more money into sport, specifically where they're creating digital innovation. Well, what does that mean? Well, exactly. How do we create opportunities for people to see sport on a variety of levels and engage in it? You know, is there an easy, accessible game I can play on my phone that would help me actually get involved in a sport? You know, how do you go from phone and couch to actually trying to play something? So I think that's going to be the big challenge for squash. And I know people have always tried to do it with the different balls, you know, the different angles. I think today the, the coverage, I love watching it now because you've got the cameras on all different angles. And I think that's key because you can actually see the lunging. You can see how hard it is. When you just had the camera from the top or a couple of angles, it looked so easy. Of course it did because they were amazing athletes. They are amazing athletes. So it's making it exciting and fun. And we need influencers that are squash players. <laughs> That somehow we TikToking the, you know, or whatever the new platform is going to be. What is that? You know, how do we get squash in that new digital platform? You know. Yeah, it seems the demands of where the sports need to be just keep increasing, and this is very true for the athletes themselves. But you know, on the business side, I feel like just as the sport was getting sort of up to the starting line, they were like, "Nope, you're behind." And I'm optimistic about the next decade with some of the stuff that we're involved in at the PSA Foundation, that those are some of the things that they're going to take a long time to really take root, but we're trying to tackle this big problem. And we've gotten a lot of the key ingredients from a broadcast level, like you mentioned, but going back to the Olympics, the reason why I think everyone tunes in is because of those stories and those dreams. And I think we have a, a long way to go within our sport of highlighting those stories. But at least, like you said, you're basically trying to sell the dream and that inspires. Is there any story that jumps top of mind for you about highlighting the dream? In my work at the USOPC, I often was asked to speak or present different topics and such. And often I would talk about just personally, what motivated me every day was when I would help create these partnerships, it was always the kids that I would meet. And especially because I had been a coach. Well, yeah, I guess I should go back. It goes back to the Weimlers, who were my coaches, who took me, this high-energy kid, and gave me a chance to put my energy into a positive goal. And then those skills I learned through squash really helped later in life. So jump forward many years, what motivated me every day was how do I recreate that opportunity for other kids where they get that chance to put their energy in a positive light. So it pretty much was kids' smiles. You want to light up a room the keynote speakers should be the kids. Think about Wimbledon right now, the young British girl who's 17 who's just lit up the country. You know, unfortunately, she withdrew, and I guess we don't know all the background, but hey, amazing. But to see her exuberance and excitement, that's what we love. That's what we love about babies, the light. Everything's new and exciting and fun, and, and it's remembering that. Like, life get, can get so serious, and how do we... Remember, let's do good. Let's give back. Let's create opportunities for other people, especially I really appreciate the opportunities that were given me and, and I hoped to give back as best I could. So the two gentlemen that in 1968 in Mexico City, I believe it was, who stood on the podium, the two black men and raised their fist and they were treated horribly. I know that's mild for what how they were really treated. I got to listen to him speak and he had no regrets, not only no regrets, but he wasn't angry at the treatment. And literally, it was 40 years later, they actually recognized their achievements. The Olympic movement, whether people think it's right or wrong, good or bad, it gives people an opportunity. It gives them a voice. Often that voice is not listened to or heard. It gives them a platform. And if they can take that platform in that moment and then further it on to make a difference for those who don't have as much fortune as they, that really inspires me. And so, yeah, I, I think I could probably keep going on the stories, but, and I'm sorry, I am just not remembering his name. And I have a picture on my phone. One of my social medias, I have a picture with him. I can't remember which one it is now, but sorry, it, I should know his name right off the top of my head. Very inspiring. It's okay. I don't always have a perfect recall myself. So you're in good company. Oh, if I can just say the other people. So when I, U.S. Olympic Committee partnered with Colorado Springs on a new building. 
you know, we got new offices and you got to pick the pictures you wanted on your wall. And I picked Wilma Rudolph and Jesse Owens that were on my wall because Jesse Owens was a hero. He was an unbelievable athlete. He came back home to America and mistreated horribly and struggled to get a job. Today, things are starting to move a little bit more in that, that area. And Wilma Rudolph, you know, suffering polio as a child and then becoming this amazing athlete. So there's so many stories. How do we tell the squash stories? And you're doing it. <laughs> I'm trying. But, you know, speaking of which, I want to sort of rewind the clock and go back to you and your childhood. Because I think there's an element of, you know, what you are mindful of what to try and provide others was kind of elements of the experience that you had. And so growing up in Brooklyn Heights, like sort of set the scene of you as an athlete and then finding the sport of squash. Yeah. So growing up in Brooklyn, it was fun. Today, it's definitely way more expensive. And it's also sort of a thoroughfare getting into Manhattan. And it's very, very busy. If you go back many years, <laughs> we were, gosh, playing on the streets. Squid Park was still open. They had the steep hill down to the Brooklyn Bridge, the empty warehouses, all that. I mean, we used to skateboard and bike, stoop ball, stick ball, jump over fire hydrants. We were just playing outside all the time. We would just make up games. I just love sports. I love running around, being active, playing. My grandparents had a place called Tag Harbor way out in Long Island, and we were able to get out of the city a lot. So it was swimming a lot in the ocean, and it just was amazing to be able to bike and swim and play tennis. And I didn't play that much squash until a little later, but just lots of sports. You know, went to this a lot as a lot of squash players in Brooklyn Heights went to the school called St. Anne's, and so we could walk back to the Heights Casino after school. And we played backgammon, played table tennis, we made up games, we had this thing called floor tennis, we had a little basketball hoop there, and I would just hang out at the club, and you didn't have to book the courts every time you'd play, you could just, they were open, you could just go hit, you know, now at courts and clubs are so busy, and kids today are so scheduled, they've got piano, and then they've got squash, and then they have tutor, and then they have German, and we had a little bit more free time to play not just a specific sport, but play and invent sports and be creative with what you thought was fun. So I like climbing trees a lot, too, when I was out on Long Island, which sometimes was frowned upon. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word about our sponsor. So, Lee, we want to thank you for being our first sponsor on Squash Radio. And just want to say you've sponsored other avenues, but squash is always where your heart's at. What does it mean to you to be sponsoring squash? I, I think there's just a, a lot of interesting people in the sports. I've attended junior tournaments. I've been to professional tournaments. And you can always get into some engaging conversations. And I think Squash Radio is an avenue of bringing those people to the forefront. And I'm sure a lot of people would like to listen to them. And sponsoring this, we're just uh, facilitating that. That was Lee Witham, who is the CEO of Pro Sports LED, the sponsor of this podcast. You probably don't even think about lighting, and neither did we until we started talking to Lee. And now we totally get the problem that Pro Sport LED is fixing. And we know maybe that's not you now, or maybe not you ever. But if you know anyone who might be interested or need to improve their lighting for squash, tennis, soccer, you name it, it would mean a lot to us and our sponsor if you'd put us in touch. You can go to squashradio.com slash LED or email squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Thank you again and back to our show. Well, I mean, knowing where you ended up being one of the most successful squash players in the U.S., I can imagine that you were sort of gifted with athletic talent. And at what age did you start becoming aware of like, I'm pretty good at a lot of things I try? I was very fortunate. I am very fortunate that sport just, I just really enjoyed it. And it did seem to come naturally to me. And when, and I, such a clear memory, and I can't even remember what grade it was. What happened was we'd have recess, you know, when you play and I'm often playing with the boys because Sometimes the girls aren't as interested in sport as the boys, which is a very stereotypical thing to say, but the time was sort of the case. And in the classroom, this boy, like those old wooden chairs, he threw a chair at me. And uh, I think I ended up hitting him, giving him a black eye. So it came down to, well, what happened? I'm like, well, he threw this chair at me. And, and so what was happening is that some of the boys, because I 
as good or better than them at whatever, like we play floor hockey on the top floor in St. Anne's or whatever games, Cadman Plaza Park, we used to go play and they had this mile run and all these different sports I play. And I often did as well or better than, I think it started sinking in when the boys would like literally sort of want to gang up on me, which was not a happy moments. And I remember my mom saying, they're probably just jealous or envious that you're good at something and just try to, you know, just keep doing what you're doing. And so I think it started sinking and then went playing squash and pretty quickly I picked it up. I loved it and did well and starting to win and yeah, get a lot of attention for it. And I would just be like, well, I'm just playing. I'm just having fun. And I, I started realizing, okay, I'm, I'm pretty good at this. And of course, I think I got addicted to the winning. It was fun. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it almost, you know, sometimes it's interesting how that can sort of develop our identity as well. And with that early success, like how did you, because it sounds like that was both a motivator and it was in, something that appealing, but also that can come with its own set of challenges. So how did you balance that? Absolutely. Great question, because I always struggled to balance that. I don't think I did a great job of balancing it, frankly. What happened was I, when squash continued to stay fun, and I think, and when I kept it in that it's sport, it's a game, I think I played better. I think when it came more of a job, a full-time thing, and in many situations, people would, you know, not be, oh, well, it's easy for you. And, oh, well, you should have won. Or if I lost a match, people would be upset. Like, how could you lose to that person? I started listening too much to outside feedback. And I think any teenager, or as you come into your early 20s, you're thinking of all those things. And again, as became very clear then when I was starting to, I mean, this is, you know, 18, 19, 20. So I'm at Penn and I'm sort of still winning everything. And then the whole being unsure of my sexuality came in and, and I started questioning myself more and being not as, I just wasn't as comfortable in my own skin. What I started realizing, wow, is I can get a lot of attention if I lose. I don't think I consciously thought of that, but there were times when there was an overwhelming sense of wanting to just sort of, you know, I, I don't know that I have the energy to play. I, you felt like so many people wanted you to lose that okay, let me just lose and then you can, you know, say that I didn't win every match or just, it was just something about the pressure of I had to win all the time and I was supposed to win all the time. I didn't end up playing the four years at Penn because my last year I went professional because I needed money to pay my tuition. Otherwise I wouldn't have graduated with my class. I frankly don't know that I could ever say that I really came to balance that. I think today, I think as I've aged, you know, I've tried to mellow but I just have this really intense, competitive, wanting to win behavior once I get on that court. And it went from no matter what the score was, if I was down two games to love, I was like, I don't care if it's 13-0. Of course, I'm giving you the hardball counting because right when I went to 15, I can turn this. And at times I did. There was a match that I turned around. I was down two games to love, like, I don't know, 12 to 3 or something. And I turned around and I won it. I just really had this incredible, strong belief in myself. But when I let outside influences, I started to question myself. That's when I think I really struggled with the identity piece and that if I lost, it meant I wasn't good enough. I started to measure my success as a person with my squash success. So if I lost, well, that bad. If you win, it's good. I mean, that oversimplifies the reality of, I think that that's an issue that many athletes have is you identity gets totally enmeshed in your success in your sport. Completely. And that comes with its own sets of challenges. I didn't grow up during that era. So it's, it feels like, it sounds like you were actually had a multi-front battle going on in terms of, like you said, being good at sports as a woman has its own set of challenges. Then your identity within sexuality started revealing itself. And for someone who didn't experience that, how would you describe that to help someone understand what that felt like? Well, first of all, I, I love how you address that because it wasn't only like being a woman and dealing with still the things are, are better now, but there's still a long way to go. And then the sexuality piece. And then the other piece, just to add, is the pressure of to have a serious and real career, you know, going to UPenn and how can you just play squash? I mean, no one plays squash. Well, I'm sorry, there was a hardball tour and I didn't mean for it to come out in any way diminishing the importance of that time and that hardball tour. The hardball game was doing really well. That's when I won 
the most amount of money ever in squash one year. It was like the last year after it was like 1987 or something. I won like 18,000. I thought I was rich. And, you know, and of course, hardball, you could play in the States, but going overseas, I did was more expensive. And, but back to what I was saying about the gender piece, the sexuality piece, but then it was the career piece, the pressure I felt that I should really have a, a real job. And in the U.S., the professional athlete, especially the squash, I mean, it was such a small sport then. What are you doing? You need to, you know, get a real life, get a real career. So I think all of those things become real pressures. I mean, I certainly was one who I read a lot. I tried to understand what I was going through. I think at times, you know, obviously you talk to your friends and family, but often if I had listened to most advice, it would have been probably wouldn't have kept playing squash. I probably wouldn't have gone overseas. A big disappointment, I think, for me was squash, hardball squash was doing very well. And that was, it was just doing very well. And, and I started going overseas then because I said, look, I'm number one in the States. That's great. But I have to go overseas. No one plays the international game here. And I want to see how I can do. And at that point, people were upset with me. They're like, how can you not play this tournament in the U.S. in your home country and go play this international game that no one plays here? And it's funny to talk about it now because look where we are now. Everyone's playing the game. And so I seem to be, that was just part of my personality of Sometimes the good part was not listening to people because then I did some great things. But I think in not listening, sometimes maybe I wasn't as coachable as I could have been. Maybe I didn't listen as much because I just was fiercely independent. I think I had to be to try to get by traveling around. But I will say that today what's different, and if people are going through these different areas of, of struggle, and I don't know that I had the words for it then, I didn't have really the support that I that I needed to really maybe have been able to do as well. I think emotionally it was very difficult for me because all of a sudden I'm, you know, number one in the States and then I go overseas and I'm nobody and I'm trying to figure out how do I get to events? How do I get practice partners? Which club should I play at? Can people help me? You know, people had established groups at the Institute of Sport. I went to Australia and so I was playing with Sarah Fitzgerald and Michelle Martin. And of course, I think I was 23 then, and they were like 17. And Danielle Drady, and that's when Heather Mackay was coaching. And Heather took those three players. And of course, Liz Irving was also doing, already doing very well. And she was great because I was able to train with her and play with her. And she was always very helpful. But a lot of countries supported their athletes, and they'd have a coach travel with them. I was just sort of out there on my own trying to figure this thing out. It wasn't until later in life really realizing that you need to ask people for help. And say, you know what? I'm having a bad day. I can't practice today. Or I'm having a bad day emotionally. I am tired or I don't feel good about myself or whatever it is. I don't know that I had the skills then to deal with it. And to be totally honest, I think sometimes it was totally acceptable to just go out and have a bunch of beers or go have a big party night and pretend everything's fine. Meanwhile, inside, you're thinking, okay, I'm trying to play the squash thing. I have no money. I don't know where I'm going to stay next week. You know, what am I going to do? So my advice is just you need support. You need to tell people how you feel or first become aware of how you feel and be kind to yourself. But, yeah, it sometimes I look back and go, okay, wow, I actually got through that time pretty well. I mean, good for me. I'd sort of just on a whim, well, it wasn't on a whim. I went overseas and, and tried to play around this new game, new tactics, new technique. And it was tough because all of a sudden my confidence really dropped because I had no support. It's hard to know which thread to pull on because you brought up so many great things. And I think one of the parts, though, that I will jump on is because this is kind of like the lead domino, like asking for help has its own set of challenges, but you touched on a level of self-awareness it's hard to measure like, well, how self-aware am I? That's kind of hard to measure. And so what are some questions that you found yourself asking either at the time or questions you wish you'd ask yourself in retrospect to kind of gauge like, how am I doing? We all say this as we age, if we only knew then what we know now. And there's something to be said about understanding the range of feeling that you can have and because I was so competitive and just my personality was such that if I got a bad call or if I missed a shot that I really wanted to hit, you know, I could get pretty upset at that. And for so long, you know, every, oh, you, you know, you can't do that. You can't do that. And 
I think I had gotten to the point where it wasn't a healthy response for me to just smash my racket on the wall or yell at a ref. But that's because I hadn't learned how to deal with it in a healthy way, which is, okay, I'm really mad. I'm going to walk to the corner of the court and just give out a yell or stop my foot or something. And then, okay, I'm back at it. But what happened was so often it was deny, deny, deny the feeling, and then I'd blow up. So if you're not very self-aware, you probably have extreme feelings and don't know how to dial it back a little, pause, take a breath. But that's part of the when your identity is wrapped into your sport. And because I missed that shot, you turn it around like, that's so bad. that I, That's terrible. I missed that shot. You can't hit a damn ball. You're terrible. Blah, blah, blah. You get into this negative self-talk. You got to flip it and figure out how to move to the self-talk, the positive. Okay, I missed a shot. I can't just be giving myself a hard time for the whole match. You got to go to the next point. So I don't know if that you know answers the question, but self-awareness is the asking for help is in specifics. So to ask someone who seems calm on the court, like I didn't turn around and say to Susan DeVoy, who was playing when I was playing, and say, how are you so calm in the court? How are you able to do that? You know, whether athletes share that information, that's at the PSA, actually what we're trying to do with the squash hub, right? So share those tools. But I think maybe reading more biographies on people and how they dealt with things. And athletes are, are writing more stories about, you know, Agassi. I mean, think about how here he is, such a good player, and he was distraught inside. Well, many players I think that's part of if you have a gift at something, you're meant to learn some things too. Humility, God, it's such a multifaceted question. I think it would take me, it would just take a really long answer. <laughs> Was there any moment in time that kind of illustrates where you did ask for that help? If you think about it, like, what if you hadn't asked for that help? Where was that sort of fork in the road for you that you're so thankful that you did ask for help? So the New York Times did an article on me when I literally was just about to quit squash. And I had lost a match. There was an international event that had come to New York, which was super exciting. I, I think it was 1987, I can't remember when. And they literally had put this article about me on the front of the sports, the New York Times sports page. And it basically was the story of me just, I just couldn't do anymore because between the potential injury, no finances, no real coach, training partners, all that type thing, I finally was like, I just, I can't do this anymore. This is just too hard on so many levels. And then, you know, I didn't realize at the time, but you learn when you're physically you're putting so much energy into something and not knowing about recovery and recovery time, physical tiredness also affects your emotion. So because I didn't really have that understanding, I just was like, I just need to quit. And from that article, a couple of individuals sponsored me for a couple of years and and it was amazing. And they were super supportive because I gave them this whole packet, like a promo packet, which I had done on myself. And who knew then that that's you know, what you should have as a player, you know, and then I budgeted everything. I gave them this yearly plan. And so they supported me. And at the time it was tough because I, I sort of was, I think, emotionally still too drained to be able to turn around and put that energy into playing full time again. But that was when I finally realized I can't do this on my own which maybe was the best decision because then maybe I was not putting all my eggs in one basket and starting to realize that it's a smart kid. I went to Penn. There's other things I can do. Somehow in that article, it came across that I was like, I'm tired. I, I just, this is really hard. And all of a sudden I got all this feedback like, oh, I'd love if you kept playing. You're so good. We want to support you. All of a sudden, you know, you say there's this article that comes out telling people that you're struggling. People say, hey, what can I do to help? I care about you. I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know how to ask. And I guess that's what I mean about asking for help. I didn't know. All I needed was just a pat on the back, hearing that people care. Like, I don't care if you get to number one in the world or you don't. Or, yes, I got to 14. But that was, I think, a really good moment. But I just, while we're on this topic, the other piece that's really interesting is I had this goal, again, I can't remember what year it was, WISPA had just started, and the Women's International Squash Professional Association, and at one point I was on the, the board of that, and WISPA had just started, and then they were, you calculate points and everything, and, and I thought, okay, 
I'm going to give this, hopefully within a year, I can be top 16. So sure enough, I got top 16 and I was seated 16th in, I think, in the British Open, which is at that time, that was the big event, right? Because that's where everyone plays. And I remember my back was sore and I was, again, back then, I'd fly over like a day before, something crazy. And I lost that match and I was so disappointed in myself because I was like, you actually achieved your goal. And what I realized in that moment is, you know what? No matter if I was the fact that I had been number one in the U.S., the fact that I had reached, you know, the top 16 within the year, I started realizing for a minute, like, oh, my God, even if I reach a goal, I'm still the same person. Life is still the same thing. I'm still going to fly home and need to just do the same thing, same training. All of a sudden, it dawned on me, like, some kind of success, something outside of yourself is, that's not the answer. That's not what is going to make you happy or change your life, or you have to really get to know yourself and like yourself. And whatever you do, you can make that your own success. You don't have to have other people tell you that it's a success. No, of course. And so you're at that moment. And what happens next in terms of you have this realization, which is, I think, a profound one. And it's one of those things that we do hear that a lot, but there's a difference between hearing about a roller coaster and then experiencing a roller coaster. So having that sort of realization in that moment, what did you do next? I think I really struggled after that because then I realized, well, it doesn't really matter what your rank is. You have to love what you're doing. You have to really enjoy it. And I think I played out that year or maybe another year or two, but I just think I lost a bit of my heart in it because squash became an expectation of how I should do. It became a job because other people thought I should do better than I was doing. or And plus, I guess I was my toughest critic, ultimately. If my heart wasn't in it and I was exhausted from just this constant travel back and forth, trying to afford this, trying to get better from this injury, trying to find training, you know, yada, yada. And believe me, this is not, oh, woe was me. Hey, it was an amazing, privileged moment to even be able to pursue sport, you know, at that level. But I think it was sort of like, oh, my gosh, I really need to do more self-reflection to really understand, okay, well, if my heart's not in this, what do I really want to do? What would be next for me? And then that came to sort of the next realizations, which was a lot of humility and in working at a sporting goods store, because, again, I had to pay rent. And then I got a chance to coach, started coaching, and then... The Heights Casino job opened, well, one job opened, then another, and, and then it was pretty soon that then I got the head pro at the Heights Casino, and, and I was thrilled. I loved coaching. I didn't think in my, I was judging coaching as, I will say, I think typical Americans don't appreciate a phys ed degree that I graduated in economics, but around the world, phys ed is a serious subject. Coaching is a serious subject. So I had downplayed like, oh, no, I don't want to be a coach. But you know what? I loved it. It was amazing coaching people at all levels. I was nowhere near your level of on-court success, but I certainly had the the passion of the sport. And I ended up after college, you know, I think I had the same crossroads, like what do I want to do with my life? And that's when I started working on founding Metro Squash and John Flanagan, who was just was so helpful and instrumental in giving me opportunity. And he's like, hey, look, if you're going to be doing that, you probably want some work. And I was working at the desk at the university club and slowly worked my way into coaching more and more. And I think a lot of those things you just said resonate with me deeply of the same thing, like, well, here I am college educated, I'm doing this. And it just, I actually loved it, but I don't think I was enjoying it as much at the moment because a lot of those potential outside perceptions. And what I can say, you mentioned smiles a while ago, and it just reminded me of being able to, whether it's kids and or adults, to help them hit that first ball for the first time and see them smile or get them to like really involved in the sport was so rewarding in so many different ways. And I think that has propelled going down this path of uh, actually a lot of things make sense in retrospect, not when you're going through it. <laughs> but so it, there's an element where what you're saying resonates with me. And But I'm curious, how did you then make the leap to the USOC? What door opened for you? First was really you have to have the self-belief The people talk about and I do sort of agree with sometimes women look at the position and go, oh, well, I'm not qualified yet to apply for that. And sometimes guys will think, oh, of course I can do that. And unfortunate that it is sort of sometimes a gender thing. And so first I think it was, okay, I mean, I love coaching. 
but this is just an amazing possibility. But what had happened was I visited a friend who also grew up in Brooklyn, and it was funny. I used to try to get her to play squash, and she was trying to get me to play tennis. And we used to play, I think her place was like, she lived in Borum Hill. And, of course, back in the day, there was clear distinctions often where white people lived or people of color lived and things like that in Brooklyn. And Borum Hill at the time was a, was a rougher neighborhood. And she was mixed race. And anyway, we had these great games of, like, tag football. We were dodging in and out of cars. I mean, it was, of course, parked cars. Sorry, not moving cars. <laughs> but, no, it was sort of a fun story. So she ended up, you know, playing tennis. And she ended up at the U.S. Olympic Committee. And I had gone to visit her just to catch up. And then I thought, wow, this is so cool. This is the U.S. Olympic Committee. And how come squash isn't in the Olympics? And could squash train here? And so I ended up applying for a position there, which was in her department. So it was, to be very honest, we all have a lot of skills, but it makes a huge difference when you have a connection somewhere. And that's why the squash education program and, and other sports that give young people an opportunity to connect with people at a variety of levels, it will help open doors. And that helped open the door. And so I ended up getting the position. She really wanted me for the position and it fit exactly my resume, which is what they wanted someone that had elite athlete, elite coach and a sports administrator. So it started in athlete development. That was my first job there called manager of athlete development. And that was more youth focused. It was a lot of fun. I think there's an element in a lot of life. We can say that there's luck involved, right? But a way of defining that is sometimes like preparation meeting opportunity. And I think that, yes, a connection is needed on multiple levels. But that gets you through the door. That doesn't get you a 20-year career sometimes. So one quick thing with my role at U.S. Squash when I was involved with Team USA was I did interact with the USOC. And it was just amazing that through and through every person I interact with, which is in the 10s to 20s, was one of the highest caliber people I've ever experienced in my life. It came through. The passion was there. The level of understanding, the competence, the professionalism. And I mean that across like a lot of different sectors I've seen. So it's an amazing new organization. Well, I'd like to um, shift gears a little bit. And I call it the quick fire section because we're going to touch on uh, different subjects. You can answer these with as much brevity as you want or as much detail. But we'll start off with something light. This is always a fun way to get to know the people in a different light. So do you have a favorite movie or documentary? There's so many great movies, but there's this one line I always go back to. And I guess it does sort of deal with white privilege. And it's, I think it was called Grand Canyon. Daniel Glover, and he says he befriends this white guy, and you know, and, and it's this whole scene, and a situation erupts that's not a very healthy situation. And Daniel Glover turns this guy, and he's like, "This is not how it's supposed to be," you know. He's talking to this young black man who has a gun. He's gonna just, and it's the movie. Just, it's really about how so often we see things in black and white, literally, physically. You know? But really, things lie in the gray. And can we just be kind to each other and try to treat people with more respect and not label people all the time based on what we see? So I do tend to go back to that movie. It's a great moment. The next question is, uh, what gets you fired up? And this can either be something, sometimes we get fired up because of something negative in our life or because of something positive. But what is something that kind of gets you fired up? Well, as you can see from the movie, I said, you know, it's when something to me seems unfair, like I can be on a plane and in the row in front of me or behind me, I hear someone say something and or some interaction and I will say something about that. I used to fly a lot with work and one time this man was berating this person at the check-in and I was like, dude, just chill out. This woman is doing the best she can to help you out. Then he just steered the anger at me, but I can't just sit back when people, it's usually around fairness and respect. And I just get, I mean, I get fired up, like, don't be misbehaving so badly. Meanwhile, coming from me when I could lose my blank on the squash course. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it sounds like you're ready to jump into action at any time. I know another huge part of your life has been on various board of directors for organizations. What does being in those positions mean to you? Well, I think a big piece is service, right? So, again, you know, we serve on the PSA Foundation Board, and 
a big piece of that is saying, okay, well, if we're going to try to help the athletes, you know, I, I definitely want to help write the procedures or be involved. So yes, athletes are struggling. Well, what's an action I can do in my role today that can actually make change? So it's service. It's not just being a board member and being at meetings, but it's actually doing behind the scenes work, trying to be useful and helpful. I really appreciate being able to be a part of the PSAF. And then I remember there was a nonprofit that I worked with, and I did this at the U.S. Olympic Committee as well. I, I do this a lot. I'll look at materials and I'll say, who are we targeting? Is that a picture of the person on this information, on this flyer, in this? And often not. You know, if we're targeting young Latina women, we need to show them. If we're the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, we need to represent the country and everyone that's in our country. So how are we wording that? How are we showing that? So, and I was fortunate to serve on USA Swimming's Diversity Committee for like 12 years, I think. And we create a lot of great programming and informational toolkits that are on the website. And a lot of other NGBs, national governing bodies, could use those because I would go to a meeting and we'd be sitting in a meeting and all the pictures on the wall were gold medal mostly white men. And I'd say, okay, well, if you're wanting to create diversity in your sport, you have to show it. You have to be proud of who's swimming. You have to make a young Asian background child believe they can be a, a gold medalist. So let's just show it. Really service. Service and not just, or in other, my wife says this so well, and she always says, well, if there's a problem, we'll come up with the solution, right? Be a part of the solution. I love that. So next question is, what is something or an activity that brings you disproportionate happiness? And the one caveat I'd say there, I think we can all agree, you know, our family, our loved ones, our friends, and, you know, our pets really kind of help provide that. So moving beyond that, what is something, whether it's a, a habit, a ritual, or like actually something uh, that brings you disproportionate happiness? Yeah, well, I have to say dancing. I love to dance. And anyone who knows me knows that, you know, whether it was at a world championship event where, of course, the last nights, you know, everyone's parting up a storm and dancing and having fun. And we used to, there used to be back in the day, you know, each team would have to do a skit. And so we used to do skits, you know, just silliness. So, yeah, I mean, I'd love to love to dance, love to dance. And do you wait for a dance floor or do you make a dance floor? Oh, make a dance floor. Yeah. All right. Oh, make a dance floor. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I like it. Now, I, I have to say that I, you know, I'm not one of those line dancers or country dancers. I, I, I never quite, I just don't feel the, the country music. And I'm sorry for those folks there who are country music fans. I just, it's definitely the beat. You know, I'm a Brooklyn kid. Sugar Hill Gang was coming out, when, you know, growing up. And, you know, that was the time we had kids break dancing on the streets, you know. So it's definitely a good beat. Yeah, I like a good dance floor. And um, my line was like, look, I'm not classically trained, but I just try and have fun. Next question is, I'm sure you're familiar with TED Talks. And the scenario I'm going to lay out for you is, and this might be hard for you because there's a lot known about you, but so you're going to give a TED Talk, but it actually can't be something that you're really well known for. So what is that something that isn't obvious to the audience? And or another way of phrasing that is, what would you want to go explore and then share? So what would be your TED Talk? Well, maybe it would be what I've really loved getting into here in Dublin, which is my garden. And I just, we had friends over last night for dinner and I was chatting with someone outside. And as we're looking, it, it, believe me, it's a small front garden, small back garden, but I'm starting to name all the different items, you know, the petunias and the pans pansies and the dahlias and the mompresia and the agapanthus and the clementis and the lavender and the just all these names. Of course, the roses are my favorite. And just talk about the joy of sitting down and having a cup of coffee in my little window nook and the joy of watching the bird fly over and eat some of the bird feed. And the bees are amazing. We just had the bumblebees and now all of a sudden it's moved to the honeybees. And it's just, it, nature is amazing. And just in this small, you know, we got a nice two-story house, front back garden, but I just get a lot of joy out of watching nature and hearing my neighbor's friend who happens to be the local 
works locally and he has a beehive on his roof and says how the bees are doing amazing because there's such variety in our neighborhood of flowers and pollen. And so, yeah, some kind of topic of finding joy in new areas of life, different from what you always thought you should do or what used to give you joy. Finding new, exploring new areas to bring joy, something like that. I like it. And I think there's, I mean, we're living in a pretty remarkable time in human history, but that doesn't mean it's the best for us in terms of what we're, we're missing out on our roots. And I think nature is a big one of that, you know, with the more the urbanization and the technology, it's really, we're missing out on part of what brings us that. I think you, you hit the nail on the head with the, our actual joy. So it's good. Is there a book, and because I'm a podcaster and I don't read as many books, I will allow to include, like, are there any books or podcasts that you've enjoyed, whether recently or in your life, that you would share with uh, the audience? I've really been enjoying the time to, to read a lot more than, than I used to. And I've been reading a lot of what I find just helping further educate me a variety of cultures. If I look back and, and look at some of the books that really shaped me, I, I mean, do like C.S. Lewis, you know, whether even though he was very Christian, but a lot of the values and that stuff that he talked about, like Krishnamurti, Thich Nhat Hanh. And then I've been reading, it was based on mindfulness. I have to say, here we have this wonderful, it's called Borrow Box, the Dublin Library. You know, I can just go on and, and get books as well as audio. And so I've been able to really enjoy reading, you know, Edith Edgar, who wrote The Gift and Choice. Those were amazing books. Actually, it's John Kabat-Zinn who writes on mindfulness. But someone like Emma DeBerry, who, who wrote Don't Touch My Hair, you know, it, what is that other one? that There's, oh my gosh, I don't know what to say on books. Let me ask it a different way. Is there a book that you have gifted to people? or would want to gift if you had to give one book to people? Well, recently I gifted someone a book, and it's called Heal Your Back by Dr. John Sarno, because that was a turning point for me. And it's very much about a type A sort of perfectionistic personality and how physical injuries, you know, they're physical injuries. But just step back, pause, take a moment, and look at the whole spectrum of what that could entail. And I'll sort of just leave it at that. If someone wanted to read that book, I was lucky to see him in his lifetime. He's passed since. But it really helped me take a different perspective of what was going on with me at the time and, and look at physical injury in other aspects as well in terms of my overall health, mental health, physical, emotional. And, and it just was very eye-opening. That's very vague. <laughs> I know. I feel like you're giving a little teaser here. Like, you got to go read it. But would you want to give a spoiler alert? Or do you think that's something that people need to find for themselves? Like, in terms of, here's what I learned, or something actionable from it? Well, you know, I basically was told I can't play squash anymore because the x-rays in my back, well, you have slip discs, you have slight curvature of the spine, you have, sorry, not slip discs, slight curvature of the spine, you have less syn synovial fluid than you need, you know, your L4, L5 are totally out of whack. The list went on. And so I was, at this point, I was not Ottawa, Canada, seeing this chiropractor a couple times a week and trying to get better. And it just gave me a different perspective. It's just really hard to detail all of that. But it gave, basically, I said, okay, yes, I have this physical difficulty with my back, but I am going to look at every alternative way to try to get better. I did some acupuncture. I did some sacral cranial massage. I just started combining Eastern Western medicine and not just taking Western medicine. So maybe that's a way of saying it more, a little bit more specifically. Yeah. I think that that's, it's an important thing that I do think that both bring a lot to the table. And I think any one direction in too much extreme doesn't bring a balanced perspective. So I'd agree. Well, the last theme I want to touch on, and this was just because when we were chatting in our pre-interview, I know that this was meaningful and important to you. And this was this theme of giving back and service. And what I think highlights your career is not just what you have persevered through, accomplished and done, but then you really are trying to look out for future generations. And so I just wanted to give a moment of, you've been involved in so many organizations and just I wanted to give you the mic in terms of what does that mean to you and what are some of the organizations that you've been involved in to help in your giving back? Yeah, I think as much as growing up Irish Catholic, I think 
things I didn't agree with, and I probably wouldn't call myself a Catholic, certainly not traditional at all. But hey, I mean, everyone's entitled to whatever their belief is, as long being respectful of, of people and genders and, and things. So with that being said, one of the things I respect a lot is in that religion, there, there is a big sense of giving back. And I think that's something that I like to comment about, you know, out of whatever you read or think, you know, take, sometimes you, you take what's useful and, and leave the rest. And so that was one thing that I really took from my Irish Catholic background. And my parents were volunteers and the community I grew up in, it, it seemed like that was very common. You know, people in the community tended to give back at, on different nonprofits. So for me, I guess the apple didn't fall far from the tree. So I think giving back, it's sort of, I feel like it should be an automatic for human beings. Is if, if you were given a lot in your life, I mean, to give back gives you a strong sense of purpose. And I think it's really important. I mean, imagine if we didn't give back, where would we be today? Thank goodness for all the, the nonprofits and, and the people out there trying to help, whether, you know, today it's the homeless situation, the drug and alcohol situations, the young people that aren't treated well at home, domestic violence, I, I won't go. So I serve a lot of different organizations. And so often it was focused on women, LGBT. So I served on a local organization that was trying to decrease the levels of domestic violence. And one of the areas I felt I was really keen to do is I know we focus on trying to help the women because it's mostly women, but let's try to target men and say, okay, we need to teach young boys. How do we respect women more? And, and how can we help men who have tendency to do, to not handle anger healthy in healthy ways? So there may not be a lot of research to say, you know, yes, you can fix it or not. You know, that's just a, not a right term there, fix it or change it. But Again, looking at trying to help with solutions. And then also youth, very much focused on, I loved when I was finishing high school, going to college for two years, I worked for the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation. So it was technically, it was a job, but I would always figure out how to get extra rackets and extra tennis balls. And then all the trophies that I had won, I would take off the little marker that said what the trophy was for and then re-gift it <laughs> to the program. And I love doing that. And it wouldn't be who won something. It would be, okay, who is the best sports, and I call it sports personship, who is the best sports person this summer in the program? You know, who was most improved? Who gave the best effort? So it was more just traits as opposed to just winning. So things that I loved, I liked asking the questions that people didn't want to ask because that's why you serve on a board. If you're not getting paid for it, this is the nonprofit sector where you need to ask those questions because otherwise when I declined a budget because I said that's not fair because you're wanting to increase the budget without making the board be responsible to increase the revenue because now you're asking staff to work harder to pay them more. That should be the board responsible. So I think it, it gave me an environment where I could speak my mind a little bit more freely, sometimes in your paid position. <laughs> You know, you can't just always say what you want to say. Sometimes I was surprised I lasted at the U.S. Olympic Committee as long as I did, because sometimes I did say things that weren't necessarily popular. And, and I was able to start, you know, the first employee resource group, the LGBT resource group. And they started a diversity committee. And, you know, so it was only recently they did that. That was literally a couple of years before I left. I think like 2016, maybe, we started an employee resource group. But, you know, I, I remember being in meetings where, I mean, very homophobic things that were being said at meetings about female softball players and the assumption that they were lesbians and, of course, male figure skaters. You know, it was very, you know, people could be very, in any environment that can happen. But in sports, you know, it still needs a bit of change. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for ending on the note of giving back. I think really does highlight sort of, and you're already doing it now but it highlights where you come from and where you are now and, and how much your sports mean to you and, and what facilitating that for others can mean and provide. I go back to what you said with the smiles, having fun, giving access and playing. It's really, that's kind of what we're doing a lot of this for. It's a circle of life, so to speak. So thank you for your time today. Yeah, well, thank you for the opportunity, but also for what you do. And Metro Squash is an amazing program. So the fact, I mean, you have to be proud of what you did not just for that organization, but 
helping build and grow the SCA and being part of the PSAF. And so thanks for all you're doing and trying to grow the game as well through what you're doing, the Squash Radio and other avenues. Well, thank you. Back at ya. Yeah, we look forward to, you know, during this time of COVID, we haven't had a chance to all meet in person. So I'm looking forward to that next time when we can all do that and enjoy uh, some squash together. Absolutely. So until next time. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for joining us on Squash Radio. We hope you enjoyed this latest episode. But before you leave, we just have one quick last message. As you know, Squash Radio wants to help tell some of the best stories from Squash World. But in order to do that, we want and welcome your help. Do you know a person or a story that involves squash that is interesting, funny, moved you, you care about, reflects your passion for the sport? Well, share it with us and let's try and get it out there on the air. You can email me at squashradio at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. Again, thanks for your time and well, until next time, be well and have fun.